Welcome to Coffee and Circuses, episode 11. This week I'm chatting to Kent alumni Becky Newson, who has been working as a tour guide in Rome for six years now. Becky talks about getting used to the Roman way of life and then having to readjust when she visits home, including the differences when it comes to driving, and anybody who's ever been on a road in Italy can attest to that, and also the availability of curry. She also talks about how she preps for her tours, what led her down the route to becoming a tour guide, and some of the hidden gems of Rome. We also chat about how social media plays a big role in advertising her business, and you can find her on Beck the Guide, that's Beck the Guide without a K, on Instagram, and how the DVD release of The Mummy, still a cracking film, put her on the path to studying ancient history. Now, just to note, this is the first time I've done an interview via Skype, and also I'm having some problems with my laptop, which seems to have decided it hates me at the moment, but I think the sound is okay. Just a quick note regarding track... We've decided to extend the early bird tickets for another week as we had some problems with our system. So now if you want to purchase an early bird ticket for the Theoretical Roman Archaeology Conference, you've got until the 21st of January. So thanks for joining me. And as I'm talking to somebody in Rome this week, Avanti! came out to Rome obviously was it now a couple of months ago and the torrential rain I just couldn't believe that like just the sheer amount of rain that was coming down I actually caught a cold from that that trip as well because that first night when we went out with the students to to get some food and have some drinks we walked to their hostel and it was only about 10 minutes away but at halfway into the journey suddenly it was just dush like the heavens just opened and it was torrential and I could see the hostel at the end of the street but the rain was so bad I had to keep hiding in little alcoves and in the end I was just like I'm just going to go for it and then went but by the time I even got there I was just so so soaked through I couldn't believe it yeah here in Rome we get a lot of rainfall actually there's this old myth that I can neither confirm nor deny that technically Rome gets more rainfall than London per annum when you see when it rains like that it's you can believe it. it. It just tends to come all in one go, as opposed to the kind of drizzle that we get in England. But yeah, it, when it rains, it rains. And the thing is, the city isn't isn't built to cope with this kind of rainfall. Um, so when it rains like that, the metro's closed, the buses can't run. And yeah, indeed, I was meant to come out and meet you, but um, the roads were closed because they were all too flooded. So I couldn't even get out of my neighborhood. How crazy is that? Yeah, in, in your mind, when you go to Rome, you always think it's going to be the uh, Dolce Vita when you're sat there in the shadow of the Colosseum, <laughs> sipping your coffee in the sunshine, and then you get yeah. out there and it's just like torrential rain. I mean, that's I remember a, a number of years ago going to Florence and a very similar thing happened there as well, getting there around midday and the weather was fine. And then suddenly halfway through the afternoon, it just completely changed. I'd never seen rain like it. It was just incredible the amount that came down. Yeah, you just don't think of that really, I suppose, when you when you're coming from somewhere like Britain and going to Italy, you just expect sunshine all the time. Yeah, and uh, it's true. Yeah. I mean, we get a fair bit of sunshine. It's true, and the summer lasts longer. But uh, yeah, you can never quite tell what the weather's going to do here. It's mm. true. So how many how many years now have you lived in Rome? Um, I've been here now six years. Wow. It, yeah, 
Does it feel like? Does it feel like six years, or does it feel like it's gone in the blink of an eye? Yes and no. It's one of those things where you know, for me now, this is. I think when you first change countries and you first move, because of course you you never really know how long you're going to stay for. But as the years go by and you kind of find yourself still there, you start actually.、Um, Living, if that makes sense, you know, you start having to to do the normal things that you have to do back home, and I think a lot of people forget that when you know they hear that oh, you live in Italy or you live abroad,、um, and indeed they think it's all dolce vita that I sit next to the Colosseum all day having coffee. But、um, yeah, at the end of the day, it, it's still living. I still have to do my laundry, and I still have to go and get the car emptied, and you know all these. Day-to-day things that that need doing. So somehow you just kind of slip into into life, into into living, and then the the years kind of really slip by without you noticing. So yeah, it's gone quickly, definitely.、Mm. Do you consider yourself now to be an, a, a Roman? Would you would you identify in that way? Or I mean, how long <laughs> did you did did it take quite a long time to to feel at home in Rome, or was it one of those things that you very quickly felt like? Yeah, this is this is my place. Sure,、um, it, it's one of those things. Well, I mean, to be Roman, we we have this joke anyway, us us、uh, foreign tour guides, that technically to be a Roman, you must be seven generations born in Rome, and you must be born on the Tiber Island. Then and only then can you be <laughs> considered a true Roman. So I always say, you know, I can learn the language. I can. Uh, I have an, an Italian partner, you know. I can do all these things, but I will never, ever be considered a true Roman as much as I try. So there's that barrier, of course.、Um, but yeah, becoming becoming a Roman, it, it, again, it's a tough thing. Anyone who moves countries, who moves cultures, I think you quickly realise that, you know, that age-old saying that at the end of the day we're all the same. You know. Isn't quite true in a way. It's it's incredible how much a culture shapes you, how much it you know shapes your way of thinking and of your way of doing. And obviously, here in the Mediterranean, life is a a little slower. Things take longer to get done. They love a good bit of bureaucracy and、hmm. you know disappearing to the beach for a month in August when you can get nothing done. And yeah, it's hard not to get frustrated and to wonder why things don't work the way they do back home. So there's always going to be that little distance, you know, because you've been brought up in a different culture to the one you now live in. But that being said, I think yeah, when you live somewhere else, and if you end up staying for for many years, in the end, you kind of slip into.、Uh, You slip into their way of life. You slip into the way things go. And these days, I I fully you know expect that I will get nothing done in August. That no one will be here.、Um, and yeah, you kind of roll with it. I go to the beach too in August with all the, the Italians. So yeah, it takes time, but、um, I think I'm here for good now. Yeah. Do you ever then get a reverse culture shock when you come home? Now, does it feel weird when you ever you visit? <laughs> Come back to Britain when you're when you because you were visiting your brother in Woolwich, right?、Uh, over Christmas,、yeah. 
I mean, how does how does it feel coming back to to Britain? Do do you sort of come back here now, and you ever find yourself thinking like, oh yeah, I remember they do things like that here, like in terms of you know just little things that you you know you become accustomed to in a different way in Italy, and then you come back and it's like, oh yeah, does that does that ever happen at all, or is it pretty pretty easy to slip back in again? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, a bit of both. Again, there are things that you know when I come back to England. That I, I miss a lot. I miss um, I miss international cuisine <laughs> here in, in Rome. They're, they're very loyal to their own food, which I mean naturally so. Italian food is is pretty amazing, but you know I miss a good curry. That's <laughs> what I really miss. I miss a good curry. So whenever I come home, I'm like, oh, thank you, thank you for you know some different food. Um, and yeah, if I have to, I don't know, renew my passport or if I have to do anything you know, for bureaucracy, I'm like, oh, this is so easy. So I forgot how easy this all is. But at the same time, yeah, the reverse happens as well, Um, particularly, unfortunately, when it comes to driving. uh, I have become, and a lot of my um, Roman friends have said so as well, I have become a, a Roman driver. I drive like them, which is, I mean, it's a good thing, for Rome, but um, slightly dangerous. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so when I was home at Christmas, I, um, I, 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 oh gosh, don't tell the police. I, I kind of, I, I skipped this line of traffic waiting at a, um, a, a traffic light. And my partner was like, Becky, what are you doing? What are you doing? This isn't a lane. And I suddenly kind of snapped back into England mode, and I was like, "Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! What am I? What am I doing? You know, I've created another lane, and all the drivers think I'm crazy." And and I was like, "Oh gosh, I've got to remember where I am <laughs> and not do this again." Yeah, there's a very there's a very definite Italian way of driving, isn't there? Um... <laughs> when I first came here, I remember a Dutch friend of mine um, said to me, "The best way." you can drive in Rome, the best way to learn how to drive here is to forget everything you've ever learned. Just forget it. Um, and that really helped. It did. It's a bit of a free-for-all here. So you you work as a tour guide. Um, you work because you work for a company, right? Um, do, you do, do, you, do you work independently or do you work, you work with a company? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, technically we are all freelance tour guides. Um, it just depends uh, how many companies we choose to work for, which ones, how much we work for each one, so we work for ourselves. So all tour guides, you know, are freelance. Yeah. So I've just because I've never really thought about it so much before. But how does how does a usual working week then pan out for you? Do you get you get bookings that come in, or is it? it I mean, is it quite? I mean, I guess somewhere like Rome. I mean, is it is it quite regular, or does it actually fluctuate as well between? seasons at all um so how does, how does it go i mean like first of all how does it go through like a usual week for you um so being a tour guide yeah it's um it's not the usual nine to five um and sometimes usually right in the middle of high season um i wish i could go back <laughs> to a nine to five where you finish at five and you know leave the office at the office because, yeah, for us tour guides, it, first of all, it's very, very seasonal. Um, we work between April to October. We work, you know, seven days a week. 
we work as often as we can, mainly because we know between November and and March there isn't much at all, especially in January and February. There's there's next to no work, and not for the amount of guides that are here and that are needed in the high season. So we work a lot in summer and we work less in winter. Um, it also means that we have to be pretty organized with our calendars because it isn't a nine to five. We can't just walk in at one hour and walk out the other. You have to plan your week and every week is different. So, you know, you have to constantly update your calendar. And when you get a tour come in, you know, you put it in, let's say Monday morning and then you have to think, okay, well, now I have to go and block my availability for all the other companies on Monday morning. I have to remember not to take anything else on Monday morning. And then something comes in for Monday afternoon. And then you have to think, well, hang on a minute. You know, I'm finishing at the Vatican at this time, but then I've got to be over at the Colosseum for this time. Can I put these two tours together? And it's a constant um, balancing act. It's like a game of Tetris for your week. <laughs> Pardon? It's like a game of Tetris in the week, uh, fitting all yeah. the blocks together, how it's going to work. Yeah. Trying to fit it all together. Yeah, trying to, yeah, because it's not just timings, it's locations, um, different types of tours, you know, what, what you'll need for that tour. Some of them are in one location, others, you know, require transport between different locations. So, yeah, you really have to be on top of your schedule, especially in high season. Is it mostly a case then that people, the tours they book, is the structure of the tour already in place or do people come to you and say, this is what we want to see in particular? And do sometimes people come with places they want to see that perhaps you don't get that often that people bringing them up at all? Ah, that's an interesting question. I, it kind of depends what kind of tour it is. When I work for the bigger companies, obviously they are set group tours so you know they're always going to be the same and it's usually for people who are first timers in Rome so you know it's kind of very introductory the the tours but when you get private clients when I you know I work for myself then there's much more opportunity to be flexible and you know even if they're first timers and they want to see the Vatican if they're private clients it's, it's easier to be more flexible to say to them well what interests do you have do you do you like art or do you like sculpture do you prefer the modern period or do you like uh, you know antique stuff what what is it do you, you want um in terms of going to other places this is always the difficulty and a lot of guides including myself we like to try and promote sites and, and, and destinations that not many people go to because they've never heard of them before you know Rome is so is so big and there's so much to see but there are these incredible you know hidden locations and out of the way sites to go and see but you know trying to convince you know your average first timer to Rome that they should come and see something that they've never heard of and not go to the Vatican is a uh, it's a tough sell but yeah, we're getting there, definitely. Yeah, I can imagine, because I, I, I speak to people sometimes who are going to Rome who haven't been before, and I'm always surprised by how many people have never heard, for instance, of Ostia, um, mm. of going out to see the ruins of Ostia. It's something they haven't really come across. Also, as yeah. well, I think it's interesting when you think about things like, I suppose, 
people quite often want to go have a look at the Circus Maximus, which is understandable, but obviously it's just kind of a bowl in the ground now. But then if you go down the Via Appia, you have the Villa of Maxentius, which has still got the remains of the the circus there, which are much more intact and give you much more of a sense of, I would say, scale of what that circus would have looked like as well. I mean, is that is that a site that people people tend to go to or, or is that another one that people are quite unaware of? Is it mainly that a lot of people are just, I want to see the Vatican, I want to see the Colosseum, I want to see the Forum? You've, you've got it spot on, I think. Uh, it is a case of, you know, they want to go to the Vatican and the Colosseum and, and these places. Um, it, it, it's a tricky one and there's different different ways to combat it, I think. Uh, a lot of it is to do with the fact that Rome has so, so much in, in the city, so many incredible things to see, that I almost think it rests on its laurels just a little bit, because it knows it's always going to get tourists. It's always going to have people come and see the Colosseum and the Vatican, the Sistine Chapel, because everyone around the world has heard of these places. Whereas I think places like in England, you know, it always makes me smile when I see or read something about, you know, a a new villa has been found in a Roman villa in England. And, you know, they're they're trying to build a visitor centre and get people to come and see it. And I think, oh, they found a few, you know, rocks and they're they're really trying to, you know, (laughs) into somewhere to come and see. And that's wonderful. But because Rome, there's, there's, you know, 2000 year old bits of column lying just about everywhere in the city you know they don't have to work particularly hard to promote tourism so I think they do rest on their laurels a bit they know that people have come from the Colosseum so they don't feel the need to promote places like the, like the sites that are on the Villa, uh, the Via Appia or you know all these other destinations or Ostia so there's that to, to combat definitely for you personally, do you have any particular highlights of, of places that you like to go that you really enjoy taking um, tours to at all? Ah, oh, there are so many. There are so many in Rome that I really enjoy. And actually one of them that I was thinking about actually before before you called was the Via Appia. Um, the Appia Antica, it's just jam-packed with history and you, you can run whole tours just by walking along the Appia, because it contains every kind of level of history. I mean, the Appia is the queen of the roads, it used to be called, you know, Rome's first highway. And parts of it are still paved with the original Roman paving. So there's this opportunity to talk about, you know, how the Romans built roads, you know, their their trade connections, how that worked, you know, their messenger systems, how they would get stuff around the empire. There's so much to talk about. And that's just the road. Along the way, you've got, of course, the the, uh, Stadium of Maxentius. You've also got all of the tombs, these, you know, relics of these huge Roman tombs. And you've got the Christian catacombs. Like the Christian catacombs, this is where the early Christians buried their dead, like excavated miles and miles of tunnels, like under the city around to bury their dead underground. And when you go into the catacombs, you're looking at the origins of Christianity. You're looking at, you know, year zero for this religion. 
and that's like that's hugely exciting to look at the, the beginnings of a religion so the app here is so much fun to do um i often hire a bicycle along there there's a couple of points where you can hire a bicycle and you can just cycle along it and stop at all these different places along the way um and it, it is in rome it's you know it's in the center of rome but because it's in kind of a designated park area it feels like you're out in the countryside you know it feels like you've left the city so definitely one of my favorite things to do yeah the viapia yeah i've done the walk down there before i i went out to the like i can't remember how far i went out got public transport like far out and then turned around and then walked the way back into <laughs> rome which i i really enjoyed doing as you say it's kind of strange because you walk through this area where it doesn't feel like you're just outside of Rome. You feel mm-hmm. like you've gone quite far outside of Rome, but actually you're only a few miles just up the road, really. Um, yeah. And it was, I really enjoyed it. Actually, the, the Via Appia is, I think, one of my favourite sites in Rome, which is the uh, the church. Is it, is it actually called the Church of Quo Vadis? The, oh, yeah, yeah. The, the church of where you're going, where Peter supposedly has his vision when he's leaving Rome and then decides to go back. And I just love the way it's like this little church that's at a, uh, at a crossroads as well, which I thought was very, it's like a fork in the road, which I thought was very poignant. And just the way that you sort of turn around and then you look back at Rome, where obviously it's got the Vatican and it's got all these churches now. But it's, I mean, even whether or not you believe the story or not, I just find the story itself and that location very, but just very interesting, really. I just love that. I love the saying and based on the book, but it's, uh, I don't know. Church, yeah, Kumbadis is, is a lovely little one. I always stop in there um, because in the centre of the church there is a little stone. Of course, you know this with the, the two footprints in it, and those are the actual footprints of uh, of Jesus, of course, because Jesus was in Rome. Um, and we have a joke. We say that uh, from this we know that Jesus took a, a sandal size of 11 and three quarters. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, yeah, it's the point where he, he met Peter as Peter was trying to flee Rome. I mean, he, Peter was in Rome around the time of the persecution of the, the Christians. So he tried to flee. He tried to leave. And he got to that point on the Appia. Um, and he ran into his buddy Jesus. And he said to him, Domine Cuvadis, my Lord where are you going? And uh, Jesus said to him, I'm returning to Rome to be martyred a second time. And from that, Peter understood that Jesus was talking about his own martyrdom and that he should turn around and he should go back to Rome, where he was indeed arrested and uh, martyred over where today we have the Vatican. Yeah, so it's a neat little church, that one. I like it. Yeah, no, it's, it's one of my favourite locations. Because you, do, you don't just do tours in Rome, though, do you? You do, you do tours elsewhere across italy i mean i know you go down to pompeii as well are there any other locations you do any other what's right uh, any other locations that you go to so say you you do rome but beyond rome out in wider across italy i know you go to pompeii are there other places that you do as well uh yeah absolutely i mean first of all i think we have to remember that technically the vatican is a separate country that's true so um and their most days in a different country <laughs> Technically, that counts. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're limited to what you can do from from Rome in a day. Um, but of course, you can get down to Pompeii. And sometimes we go uh, north up into Tuscany as well, which makes a really uh, neat day out. You can go into Tuscany. And, and well, the wonderful thing about Italy is that it's so diverse. Everywhere you go in Italy, 
is so different. And it's partly due to the fact that Italy is still a really young country. And I think a lot of people don't realize how young this country was. It was unified only at the end of the 1800s. Before that, Italy was just this group of kind of warring kingdoms and city-states and republics. And, you know, it had such an, an kind of a mixture of individual identities which means that today we have an Italy that is so incredibly diverse. I mean, so when we go up into Tuscany, you're immediately met with all of these kind of hilltop medieval towns, you know, where the Republic of Siena and the Grand Dukes of Tuscany built their fortresses and, you know, went to war on each other. That is so different from Rome, which again is so different from... Venice, which is so different from the lakes up in the north or, you know, uh, Sicily down in the south. There's such diversity here. So it's really fun to get out every once in a while and uh, explore something else. Yeah. How do you go about actually preparing for a tour? Because I'm guessing now, I mean, probably quite a few of the places you go to, you've, you've done enough that you don't really have to do a tremendous amount of preparation before. But do you have to do... A fair bit of reading up. I mean, do you actually uh, do you actually go to any of the places in advance? I mean, I suppose this is kind of rewinding a bit back to what was when you first started. But did you go to anywhere to kind of get a feel of the place and have a walk around by yourself in advance? Or I mean, how did you just yeah generally how did you go into preparing those those tours and showing people around? Yeah, I mean, I think I always say to people, you know, a good guide will always admit when they don't know something which goes back to what you said about you know do we do i read up on things before i go a, a guide's work is never done we're almost like you know academics in this sense that there's always more to learn we're always you know a good guide will always be reading the next book the next um you know piece that's come out or the newest information we're, we're always reading and even in just a city like rome you've got two thousand years worth of history layer upon layer upon layer of all these different people different time periods different architectural styles different art techniques there is so much to learn and yeah a good guide will will never stop reading will will always uh continue and i mean for me this is why I love my job so much because, you know, I read this stuff also for my own pleasure. You know, I, I studied ancient history. This is this is what I love. So reading for me is already a pleasure. And then the fact that it can then be transferred to my job, you know, is, is amazing for me. I, I really love my job. So, yeah, we're always reading. We're always preparing. If I have to go somewhere new that I've never been before, which... I mean, by now, I think I've, I've been, you know, most places in Rome. Um, then, yeah, absolutely. Go and check it out and uh, see what's there. And, and yeah, like I said, a good guide will always admit when they don't know something. So even if I get there with some clients and they point at something and say, what's that? You know, I'm very open to say, you know, fantastic question. I have no idea. Like, let's look it up. Let, let's find out. Um, yeah. Guide's work is never done. Yeah, because I imagine, I mean, it blows my mind in some respects because, yeah, because when I have to go out there, for example, with, say, some students and walk around the forum or somewhere else and talk about it, I'm just talking about that 
particular period of history, the you know, the, the Roman period, the sort of well from from Augustus through to to late antiquity. But yeah, I guess when you're doing tour guiding, you've got to be aware of every kind of level of Rome's history. And that's going to be a lot of history. <laughs> that's going to be yeah. a, a lot of stuff, there, and how it all kind of fits together as well. Um, yeah, yeah and, and the, the interesting thing is, not only I mean, the, the knowledge itself is is the base of the work. Like uh, you know, knowing the stuff is 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 the core. But then the second part of being a tour guide is your ability to then explain that to the people in front of you. And again, a lot of people in front of you are, are people who who have never been to Rome before, who don't know what they're looking at. So you can be standing in the forum and, you know, be getting ready to explain how this area came to be. And let's think of an example. If you said something like, okay, so, and you, you can uh, debate this if you like. If you said something like, okay, Nero was the craziest of the Julio-Claudian emperors. You know, a, a simple statement. But then you have to think, oh, wait, but there's two problems with this, this statement. To us, it seems so simple, but they have no idea who Nero is and what that means. And they have no idea who the Julio-Claudian e- emperors are. And so then you think, right, well, a simple statement, but I can't even say that. I can't even, I can't just throw that out there. So you think, okay, rewind. I've got to tell them who the Julio-Claudians are first. And you think about it, and then you might think, okay, so the Julio-Claudian emperors were the, um, a series of emperors who, who were the first emperors of the, the imperial period. And then you think, oh, no, no, wait, they don't, they don't know what the imperial period is. Oh, hmm. gosh. And then you have to, like, keep going back. And, you know, something that that simple sentence that for us seemed so simple has, has kind of snowballed into this this big thing that you think, well, hang on, if I have to tell someone who has no idea what any of this is, where do you start? You know, where do you begin to introduce that? And that's one of the hardest things for me as a tour guide and something I'm constantly working on is how to present this stuff to people who are entirely new to it. You know, how do you describe the Julio-Claudians in one sentence? How do you do that? Uh, It's a constant challenge, but a really fun one, actually. It's interesting because that actually reminds me a lot in terms of what you have to do in teaching as well because when you talk to people about things in ancient history for example you start talking about Christianity and you start talking about the conversion of like Constantine to Christianity and subsequently what happens after that sometimes I find myself talking to students about that and then suddenly I have to catch myself and think there are probably students here that don't know anything about Christianity like they may have heard of Jesus, but they don't actually really know what any of this actually means. And you actually have to kind of dissect it a little bit and go back to, as you say, square one and, and remember that you've got to really explain things in, in sometimes quite a holistic way to, yeah. because otherwise people are going to get lost very early on about what you're talking about. Yeah. And also as well, sometimes I have to remind myself that 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 crosses across modules as well so even in sometimes i find that for example doing roman art and architecture that a number of the students i've got will know as you're saying with your example who the julio claudians are who augustus is but then i'll have students in the class that maybe have actually never done that before i might have students that are doing it as a wild module from a completely different subject Mm -hmm. so when i come to talk about the art 
I mean, some of the students have to kind of sit through going through that stuff very quickly again. But you have to be aware that you have students in the class that have not done anything on that, who you've got to, before you can even talk about Augustus in sculpture, who Augustus actually is and the, the historical context of it, which is really important. Um, so no, I, I completely, completely get what you mean there as well. Um, and, and having that, that awareness when you're talking to people about it. Um, because one of the things with you as well that you, I know you, you, you're quite engaged with is that you use particularly, uh, Instagram a lot in terms of you have a, a, a professional kind of page on there, uh, where you put up images to do with Rome and, and, and Italy sometimes and, um, talk a little bit about them. And I mean, I was just wondering, like, in terms of, cause one of the things I'm interested in, I, is the role that social media now plays in not just academia and, and disseminating academic information, but really just disseminating information about the ancient world and getting people interested in it, engaging with people in that regard. I was just wondering if you could say a little bit about what kind of role you think that Instagram plays in what you do and, and it's kind of wider, wider value to it. Yeah. Instagram and social media has, uh has grown so much, hasn't it? I mean, even the word itself, social media, it's it's not about being social anymore. It, it's kind of spilled over into education and, uh, and into business. So my Instagram uh, that I started about a year and a half ago now, uh, you can find me there under Beck the Guide, B-E-C, the Guide. Um, and I started it, as a way to introduce people to Rome a little bit. Um, again, as I said before, a lot of people have, have never been to Rome before and they don't know what to expect. And I found that a lot of people use Instagram before they travel because at the end of the day, my job is also, you know, my business. It's, it's the way I, I make my living. And so I hope, you know, to, to sell tours and to, to have people book on my tours. A lot of people do preparation now before they go. They, they follow a hashtag. They follow hashtag Rome, you know, to, to see what the city's like, to see what there is there, what there is to do, and start to kind of, yeah, form their plans. What do they want to see whilst they're there? What do they want to do whilst they're there? And it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about trying to introduce people to different parts of the city. So some of the things that I post are a little obscure, a little corners of the city that, you know, you, you just walk past or, or tucked away around the corner that you would never have found. And so I try to kind of put a lot of variety in there and, and introduce people to different topics. Sometimes I'll talk about... Oh, I don't know, the medieval period, or um, I just posted one a little while ago about the holiday of Bufana, which is an Italian holiday on the 6th of January, and what that means. And so I hope to kind of introduce people to the city before they get here. Because, yeah, that's the role that social media plays these days. You know, people have information at, the, at their fingertips. That's really interesting, actually, just because the... I was having a conversation on the podcast a few weeks ago, one of the first podcasts I did with uh, Zena Kamash from Royal Holloway. And Zena studies the representation of archaeology, particularly in the Near East, through photography from the 1800s up until quite recently. She goes about as far as TripAdvisor. But we were talking in that about how she found that on TripAdvisor, 
so many of the pictures are just the same picture repeated over and over again. It's like it's different yeah. people, but they always try to they're trying to cap they're trying to capture this perfect image that they've probably seen elsewhere. Sometimes they maybe don't even realize they've seen it. It's almost subliminal, but people like to constantly try and capture that um that image that they have in their mind of what they want to see via um well i suppose now via instagram as well probably more on instagram than anywhere else and it's very interesting how that kind of feeds into people's perceptions of of monuments and how that that relates although we were saying that when she was talking about TripAdvisor, TripAdvisor, you would usually have quite often an empty picture so you'd almost have no people in the picture whatsoever now obviously instagram as well it's kind of shifted so people have become more the focus of the picture but even still, it probably, I imagine in many cases, you have the same picture. It's just now you have people in it. But it's just very interesting, I think, as well, how that, uh, as you're kind of doing as well with, with Instagram, like builds an image of, in people's minds of um, their kind of ideal, I suppose, of what, of what they, they want to see. And um, I, it would be very interesting to see how many people that maybe you've taken around who then took pictures of that location and how many of their pictures look a bit like some of the pictures that you've taken and <laughs> whatever they've kind of subconsciously you know, that's repeated. That's really interesting. You know, funny enough, like uh, occasionally I'll say I, I try to keep on top of Instagram and the technical side of it and how all the algorithms work and whatnot. So occasionally I, I check in on some of the hashtags I use to see, yeah, to see what, what comes up. If you search hashtag Rome, what, what appears. And it is funny that... <laughs> You have the same shot of the Colosseum again and again and again and the Trevi Fountain again and again and again. And whilst you were saying this, I was just thinking, I don't think I have a picture of my Instagram of the Colosseum, which is on one side rather terrible. But on the other side, yeah, I try to focus on some other parts of uh, of the city because, yeah, if you go to hashtag Rome, you just got a, a, a long kind of list of Colosseum photos. And there's yeah. so much more to Rome. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a good point because I think in some respects the uh, I've talked about this before as well, like ancient monuments and where they've entered a new stage almost of their biography with things like Instagram and how they're represented on there. But it's almost like something like the Colosseum is a monument that you could. I mean, I suppose when you ask somebody if you did what, like, what's the first word that comes to mind when you think of Rome? Like so many people would say Colosseum. But at the same time, the Colosseum is something that's almost become so, it's become a thing unto itself. And yeah. I guess, you know, it, if you just had pictures, for example, of the Colosseum on your, particularly on someone like your Instagram, then th- there would be, a, you know, people could say like, well, what are you offering that's that different? If it, mm-hmm. it's just, it, it kind of almost, I don't know, I don't quite know how to put it into words. It's almost like by, as you say, getting things on there that people perhaps haven't really seen or been exposed to before, they actually get more of a sense of what the character of Rome is like, a more rounded view of it, if that makes sense, as opposed to just constantly, here's the Colosseum, here's the Vatican. Because I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is that maybe people don't really understand the context of a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't really... I think if you look at a picture of the Colosseum, it's all well and good, but maybe you could make the argument now that the Colosseum doesn't really give you a feel for what Rome is like. If that, I don't know if that makes sense. but No, absolutely. And I think one of my, my favourite things about my job and what I really try to promote with my private tours, you know, through, through my company, through Beg the Guide, is I really try to focus on... It's almost... It's half storytelling, but it's... It, 
it's presenting these things to people in a way that makes them understand. It, I, I know it's hard to put into words, isn't it? It's, um, you know, I, I see so many tours and, and a lot of guides who, who love to use facts and, and figures and numbers, and, and that's, that's all great. And, of course, everybody has a different style. But I think, well, at the end of the day, I'm not so high-minded as to think that, you know, these people who I'm taking around Rome want a lecture. They're on holiday. They're on vacation. They're here to enjoy the city. So I prefer to, to paint a picture of Rome to, to help them understand, yeah, the context that they're standing in, that the world that existed when the Colosseum was built. So I really try to kind of focus on my stories and, and to really kind of rope in these smaller details that help set the scene for the Colosseum because I think in that way then they go away you know understanding Rome and having some some cool stories and I think when you go back home I mean think about it when you go on holiday when you go somewhere when you come back home and your family ask you you know so so how was it what did you what did you do what did you see you don't come back to them and say well I saw this monument that was built in 72 AD and was, you know, inaugurated by the Pontifex Maximus or whatever it is you're talking about. Um, you don't say that thing. You say, you, I went to this really cool place that has this really weird story and it was really funny. And, you know, they, they start retelling a story. They don't start retelling numbers, you know. So that's what I try to focus on. Yeah. personality i think is a way of putting it. giving it giving a personality is the is 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 how people get engaged with it yeah. um oh just out of quick interest do you take anybody to any mithraea at the moment or I, I know there's the one under san clemente are there any mm. others that are genuinely open because i've there's, there's yeah. like others that I, I always try and get into but i've not had much success like the baths of caracalla <laughs> one i don't know if that's been reopened yet the one under san stefano rotondo never seems to ever going to be reopened circus maximus <laughs> one so surprisingly there's quite a few in rome that i still haven't actually seen <laughs> i'm actually not so surprised um the one disclaimer that i think i will make to rome about people is you know <laughs> never expect anything to be set in stone here in rome things change for no apparent reason they open for no apparent reason and they close the next day for no apparent reason and even we don't know why there's been many a time when you know i've turned up at uh, at the vatican and the sistine chapel is closed and people say well what but why why is it closed and i say i i have no idea no idea no, no one said anything there was no announcement nobody knows why but it's just closed this is the way Rome works. Rome is um, is an interesting city. Um, so yeah, for the Mithraeans, there's always the one at San Clemente, which is another of my favourite sites, by the way, that I, I really recommend to people. It's another one of those places, almost like the Appia, that it, it, in one site has all of these layers of history, layer upon layer. I mean, it literally is layers in that place. You've got a 12th century church, built on top of a 4th century church, but on top of the 2nd century Roman apartment building, which is built on top of slash next to this 1st century possible warehouse. You know, 
there's so much to talk about in those layers and layers of history. So it's another really, really fun place to go. I really like San Clemente. And of course, you get to glimpse into the Mithraeum there. Uh, for the others, from my understanding, you can visit by um, calling the number that is on the... They all have this website that links to the uh, the Benicotorali, which is the... Or how do you call it? Like kind of the government... Um, organization that runs these places and as long as you have a private tour guide you can arrange to get in at certain times um but yeah there aren't any others that are open to the public unfortunately not on a regular basis so i'm sorry about that <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I guess as you say it goes back to as well the fact that rome has got such a wealth of material because if you go to other places uh particularly in the Western, or what was the Western Roman Empire, particularly up on the uh, the frontier zones, they're always like, come see our Mithraeum. It's really, it's it's a really like big thing that people use to sell places. Whereas Rome, they're just like, yeah, we got so many of them. Go to Ostia. There's loads in Ostia as well. So no, nobody's that fussed about, fussed about them there. I remember seeing the one that they opened in London. And I remember reading about it and, and very shamefully, I haven't got around to going to see it yet. But I remember thinking, oh my gosh, look at it. The place looks amazing. It looks so modern and so interesting. You know, the, you know, they found one Mithraeum and, you know, they're, they're going for it. They're turning it into a visitor attraction and, well, I presume attempting to teach a few people about, um, about what Mithraism is. But, um, yeah, here in Rome, there's a, there's a good few of them. I don't, I'm not even sure you can get into the one at Ostia anymore. You know, last Oh, there's time, like, I think there's how many? There's sixteen that have been found to date in Ostia. So there's always a few that you can get into. Yeah, no, there's 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 always um, some of them are more accessible than others, but there are a good four or five of them that are usually pretty easy to go to go in and see. Um, I think the, the really famous one is the the one in the baths, which has got the statue of Mithras slaying the bull. So you can, but it's it's you have to kind of go down a slight slope into. Where it's it looks kind of undergroundish, which is what Mithra is supposed to look like. But it's got a I think it's got an aperture in the ceiling where light does come down onto Mithras, which is quite nice. But that's another one I've never quite been able to make it in because the last time I was at Ostia, once again it had rained recently. Uh, not when I was actually there, but prior to getting there, and the the Mithra in there was flooded, so you could see Mithras um, further down into the room, but you couldn't quite get to him because he was a good couple of feet water. Uh, underwater so uh yeah but no there's always there's always a fair few in ostia to to go and see yeah the, i've i always i mean the, the issue is on a tour you're always uh, restricted to how much time you have um so i always try and there's the one behind the, the three republican temples yeah near, uh, near the theater um that used to be open a while ago but that one doesn't seem open anymore that was the one that I always called in to try to teach people about <laughs> with that, if I could. Uh, but yeah, they've got the, the sculptures in the museum now, so you can always go there to teach them about it as well. Because mm. you you were part of the University of Kent excavations one year at Ostia, am I right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I was when I graduated from, um, from Kent. Um, I mean, we graduated in a time... I think this might give away our age a little bit, um, when it was just after the economic crash. So, I, uh, I literally had this conversation on the, on the last podcast as well, because really? it, was, it was with a friend of mine from, from undergraduate, and I was saying, he asked me, did I always want to be 
an archaeologist and I was like yes I didn't really contemplate being an academic though because originally I thought I would just go to university leave and then go work for a commercial archaeology unit but because we left university at that time and archaeology being so linked to the building industry everything Uh had just flatlined so they were actually making people redundant in archaeology rather than hiring them and it was only because of that, that I started thinking, well, maybe I'll just go do a master's. And that was what sent me down the, the academic route. But yeah, no, we didn't. We did not graduate at the best of times. <laughs> no, it's true. In a way, it, it's, it's worked out for us all. Um, but yeah, we all graduated, I think, with the yeah, with the hope that we would all um, yeah, turn into to archaeologists and just wait for the day when we got that phone call uh, to say that we were going to be the next Indiana Jones because... <laughs> That's the ultimate dream that we were waiting for. Still right? going for that fortune and glory. <laughs> Still going for the fortune and glory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're all we're all hoping for that. Um, but yeah, for us that was um, yeah, it was an interesting time, uh, and actually that's what kind of that's what led me here as well. I, I thought the same as you that I would leave. Um, I was always very interested in uh, community engagement. And I thought I would go into that kind of side of things, working for sites or museums um, to help with engagement and things like this. Mm, but, yeah, the job market wasn't wasn't great when, when we left. So I ended up taking what contracts there were. And, um, you know, because most of these organizations never knew what was going to happen to their funding. The contracts were always very short. And yeah, one of said contracts was um, the University of Kent actually very wisely kind of saw the situation and set up a little program whereby they offered um, these kind of paid internships, the, the you know, the gold of paid internship um, at the university, working all, in all different departments, doing all different types of things. And um, it was under our uh, our mutual acquaintance, Mr. Luke Levan, that... Um, <laughs> that a position became available. So I worked for him for, oh, it was just shy of a year, although, you know, I worked on and off for him over the years after that. In the internship, um, ended up being a a kind of a digitization assistant for him. And, yeah, and then, of course, uh, joining the excavation in, in Ostia one year. Great fun. Yeah, I will always love Ostia for that reason. Hmm. What led you originally to study ancient history at university? What was the what was the motive behind that? I'm always very interested to find out why people ended up um, going down the route of, of looking at the ancient world. <laughs> um, uh, I, I I wonder if you're expecting a very highbrow answer. <laughs> oh no, it's they're, they're never highbrow answers. That's that's fine. Because <laughs> okay. uh, it's not going to be that. Um, oh gosh, this is, it's rather embarrassing. It all started with a film. Um, do you remember The Mummy? Oh yeah, The Mummy's a cracking film. Yes, thank you. Someone else understands. <laughs> it was started with The Mummy, um, when we were, I can't even remember how old we were. Um, but it was such a great film and I remember just, just, just loving the film. And so of course I got it on DVD and that was at the time when Again, this is really going to show our ages. The, the most exciting thing in technology at that time was the fact that when you put your DVD in the DVD player, not only could you press play and watch the film, but it had all of these extras that you could like look at 
and it was like interviews with the cast or like commentary for the film. And so of course, being obsessed with this film, I watched all the extras. And I remember one of the extras was um, an introduction to the Egyptian gods. Oh, wow. Had listed there. I know, this was a great feature of DVDs. Why don't we do this anymore? Um, and it was this list of all the different Egyptian gods and, like, who they were and all the features of these gods and, you know, everything about them. And I must have read that again and again and again and again until I knew all the Egyptian gods off by heart as a child. Um, and then it kind of snowballed from there. I realized that, well, all the Greeks had some pretty cool gods that are kind of similar, but a little different. And then, of course, the Romans have their gods that are very similar to the Greek gods, and it just kind of snowballed from there. So, yeah, thanks to the mummy for that one, I guess. Such a good film. I think it stood the test of time as well. Yeah, it has. The, the Mummy Returns was on TV at Christmas. I walked in and um, I saw Brendan Fraser running across the desert. And I said to my brother, are you watching The Mummy Returns? <laughs> like, the, the sequel? So yeah, I used to love that film and that's what first got me hooked. And uh, the rest is history. Ancient history. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never yeah. seen never seen the third one though. I saw the original oh. too, but I never saw the third one where Rachel Wise uh, wasn't in it anymore. Maybe someday, no. but I don't know. Yeah, no, I think we should do it. No, no. I'm well, they 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 remade it recently, didn't they, with Tom Cruise, or they did a some oh, kind they? of mummy film with Tom Cruise? But that's just no. I think the oh. I think the Brendan Fraser one is just it, it's still it's such a good film. I think it's a bit like some of the original Indiana Jones films that you can still watch it now, and it doesn't really it doesn't really age. I, don't, I mean, maybe maybe yeah. the, maybe the CGI is a little bit a little bit dated now, but I still think it looks pretty de- pretty decent. I st- I still love it. I still think it's a great film. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said before, I think secretly in the back of all of our minds, like the the ultimate dream job, the the one that we're all heading for, is one day we're hoping to get that call from Hollywood. You know, when Harrison Ford has popped his cocks, because we all know we have to wait for him to go. Like, whilst he's alive, we don't have a hope. Um, but one day, one of us will get that call, and we are going to be the next Indiana Jones. I think he was, I think he was, like, honorary president of the American Institute for Archaeology for a number of years. <laughs> he, he, he has a, Harrison Ford actually has played an active role in archaeological bodies. <laughs> Since since being Indiana Jones, which I th- I thought was quite cool, quite, quite cool actually. Um, I did not know that. Yeah, because it's it's interesting at the moment, just because I do. I, I mean, I guess because people are still very interested in the history side of things. But one of the things you notice, I think, in academia is obviously numbers of students going to do certain subjects, and archaeology has dipped in recent years quite notably. But I think things like ancient history and classics have risen and that's probably partly because we don't have that we don't have the bump nowadays of the, the indiana jones bump or the the mummy bump or the even like the time team kind of effect anymore we don't we, we have stuff on tv but we don't have anything at the moment that's particularly you know really kind of entered into pop culture that really affects people's desire to go become archaeologists there's a lot of people that say doing ancient history in classics and i think that's to do with things like obviously Mary Beard has become a very big presence and, and does a lot for uh, promoting that and, and other people as well. But we're kind of we seem to be going through a period in archaeology at the moment where I think we're almost lacking that. 
but yeah, the the Mummy remake didn't do anything for us. So I don't know, they are going to do another Indiana Jones film. So we'll see if that has any effect. <laughs> okay, see if we get that phone call. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just one, one very quick question, actually. I mean, obviously you you spoke about people not necessarily knowing that much about Rome and the background, the historic background when you're taking them around. Do you get to talk that much about late antiquity, having having mentioned our, our mutual friend Luke LeVan? Does, does the late antique stuff come up much at all? Because I guess, I mean, one of the things that strikes me is quite a bit of what's in the forum and generally around Rome as well. There's quite a fair bit that is later Roman. Do people get quite surprised when they realise that some of what they're looking at isn't actually, it's not like Augustus, Julius Caesar, first century or whatever, that kind of period, but actually, you know, a few hundred years later. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you say, the the vast majority of of visitors of tourists who come to Rome, if they have heard um, of anybody, then of course they've heard of Caesar. Occasionally they might have heard of Augustus or Nero, but that's really as far as it goes. Um, And, yeah, as as, as we both know, the the history of Rome stretches far, far beyond that. And the thing is, is it's a really complex history as well. There's a lot going on and a lot happening, and everything affects everything else. So, again, it goes back to the fact that, you know, you've got X amount of time with people who know a limited amount, so it's often hard to try and encompass and and, and teach that period with any kind of clarity. So, I mean, it depends. Sometimes if it is a very quick tour with with people who who know nothing, then, then, yeah, unfortunately, for the the sake of, of that situation, you have to keep it very, very basic and just refer to the Roman period, which... Which, you know, it hurts a little bit because, you know, the Roman period can be divided into all these different sections, including, of course, the the late antique period. But it depends on some tours. It's possible to go a bit deeper and and to help them understand that that Rome changes so much. Mm. Um, And often it's, it's a difficult thing when talking about Christianity. That's a really hard one. Um, I do a tour at the, at the catacombs and we jump on a bus and head out to the catacombs. And on that tour, I have about 15 minutes, 20 if I'm lucky, depending on traffic, to introduce Christianity at the times that the catacombs start. So when we walk into the catacombs, we can actually start talking about the catacombs, you know. Um, so I've got like 15 minutes to set the stage. And I'm like, where? Where do you begin with trying to explain how Christianity arrived in this city and how Christians were treated? Which, again, if they've heard anything, all they've heard is that Christians were persecuted thoroughly and decisively. Which, of course, isn't true. But by a long way, the, the real situation is far much more complicated and a lot of people say, oh, you know, weren't the Christians hiding out in the catacombs? It's another thing that Hollywood has taught them. Um, but, you know, you have to find a way to say to them, well, look, the catacombs are everywhere in Rome. You know, the Romans had an empire that stretched from North Africa to to Scotland, from from England, you know, heading towards India. Do you really think they didn't know 
about these huge, you know, 12 kilometer long tunnels that were under their city. Of course they knew. You know, and of course they let the Christians bury there because it wasn't all of the emperors that were heavily persecuting them. And it's, it's a really hard thing to try and explain in such a really short period of time. So it is a struggle. Um, but yeah, it depends on the top. Sometimes you can dig a little deeper. Just moving towards uh, wrapping this up then. So if somebody was going to head out to Rome, are you, if you were just going to give like a, a tip or two of a place to go and see that other people perhaps don't know about, what, what would they be? Very good question. Of course, we've already mentioned the Via Appia. It's one of my recommendations. If it's a beautiful day, pick up one of those bicycles and uh, and go and check out the uh, the Appia Antica. Um, another bit of advice that I always give to people is: well, there's so much in Rome. There is so much, and there's so much to see. You will never see everything you want to in the time that you have. You could stay three months and still never see everything. So forget the idea that you're going to try and see everything and try to put aside even just an afternoon, preferably a day, to just wander and to just walk around. And then the next top tip, go in every church that you come across. This is Rome's little kind of secret hidden door into history because so many of these churches as i'm sure you yourself well know were built on the sites of ancient roman temples or ancient roman houses or you know they've got history underneath them so there are so many churches in rome like san clemente that if you didn't know about them you would just wander in maybe poke your head in go that's a pretty church and then kind of leave again but go in and like and have a a closer look around and so often in these churches there are underground layers that you can go in if you ask sometimes there's a little desk or a little door or you know someone's wandering around like feel free to ask them so often there are things underneath these churches that you can go exploring and then in the church itself you know churches are of course you know christian religious spaces but again, you have to remember in the time of looking at the different time periods in the medieval period, um, in Renaissance, in Baroque, these churches become canvases for these amazing artists, for, for Michelangelo, for Caravaggio. That art is displayed in these churches. And like so many people, you know, when they come to Rome, they go to the Sistine Chapel to go see Michelangelo, which is, of course, a highlight. Of course, you know, it's a beautiful thing to see. But what they don't realize is there are a number of churches in the city where you walk in and you can just see a Michelangelo just there for free, just sitting in the church. You can see a Caravaggio. You can see a Benini. They're just in churches. And a lot of people don't realize this. So I think that's my top tip. Pop into every church you see because a lot of them have some really cool things inside. Brill. Um, yeah. I guess I guess another tip as well is have a good guide. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a funny thing, actually. Um, you know, I never, I never considered, as we've already talked about, like when we left university and in, in that very difficult time, I ended up coming to Rome. In the end, almost out of frustration, I, I was kind of hopping between one contract to another. You know, trying to keep my feet in the in the industry. And in the end, you know, it, it just it got a bit too much. And I kind of said, OK, well, there's nothing I can do about 
this economy and the situation right now. So I've always, I've always enjoyed Rome. I've always liked Rome. So you know what? I'm just going to take a little time out for myself to come and check out this wonderful city that I've always adored. So I came here without any expectations, um, and I found this career that I hadn't considered before which turned out to be the perfect career for me, the perfect job. I, I really, really adore it. And I think I hadn't thought about it because, I mean, a lot of clients tend to be uh, American. And I think that's not only because they are they in a different continent, you know, Europe is very distant for them. But also, I don't think the English are in so much of a habit of having guides, of taking tours. I think we tend to take ourselves around, maybe carry a little guidebook. But when I started this job, and of course I get to follow other guides, or if I go to other countries, if my company works in other countries, I can join the tours for free. I started following tours, and then I thought, why on earth don't we do this all the time? This is amazing. You get to walk around with someone who knows where they are, who knows where they're going, and who knows everything about what you're looking at. And they're about to, you know, reveal to you all the secrets that this place has to offer. So, yeah, it's so much better having a guide. I'm now a very big advocate, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just just to recap then quickly, if, if somebody is looking for a guide, if they're coming to Rome, how do, how do they reach you? Uh, well, at the moment, I am mainly on Instagram. Uh, I think I mentioned it before, Beck the Guide, B-E-C, the Guide. Um, which is on Facebook as well, but I mainly operate on, on Instagram. And hopefully in the next month, my website will be live. I've oh, been nice. working on, yeah, getting a new fancy website up and running so that people can book tours and uh, contact me on the website, where I'm also planning to put um, a, a few kind of articles and some kind of helpful advice about the city of Rome. Because another thing that I get from a lot of tourists is real simple stuff like, how do I get from the airport? Like, it can, it can be really confusing, or how mm. do taxis work in this city? So I'm also planning on the website to offer um, lots of good advice on traveling here in Rome. So hopefully in the next month or two, that should be live. So it will be beckthegide.com. So feel free to check me out there. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, cheers. Hopefully the weather clears up for you soon as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hope so as well. I mean, last year we had snow in Rome and it rarely, rarely snows in Rome, but it snowed last year. Um, so we're wondering if it's going to happen again. It's a very rare sight, snow in Rome. Good for the Instagram, though. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Last year, check out my old Instagram. Last year, I got plenty. <laughs> Real. Cheers. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, and I hope to see you in Rome again soon. Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh, or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. 
Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies, who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. Diocletian.